a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. Glad you joined me on the uh, program. I don't know why I'm flashing my uh, Twitter handle on the screen. I haven't been on Twitter in days. I'm just dealing with some uh, uh, personal stuff, and then it's been busy, and then Twitter is just uh, awful. It's just an awful mess of hot garbage, so I haven't been spending a lot of time there. But uh, I am glad that you're spending a few minutes with me today. Uh, we are going to continue talking about uh, the attack in Boulder and the political aftermath as uh, Democrats, including uh, President Joe Biden, uh, calling for new gun control laws. Uh, President Biden making his comments uh, yesterday. Didn't take any questions uh, from reporters, just uh, made a statement. Did not announce any executive actions, which, as uh, gun control groups, Pretty upset, to be quite honest. I mean, uh, this was supposed to be a day one action from President Biden. Uh, we're on day 60-something, and uh, no executive actions on firearms coming from the White House to this point. Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris making the rounds on the media in lieu of uh, Sleepy Joe today. And uh, she was talking about how, well, you know, this is really something that, that Congress should be doing. We haven't ruled anything out uh, from the executive side, but this is really, you know, something where Congress should take the lead. Well, you know, the House has passed two gun control bills that uh, would have no impact whatsoever on violent criminals, uh, would impact legal gun owners and law-abiding Americans. And uh, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia uh, said on Tuesday that he's not supportive of the background check bills that have uh, passed out of the House. He said, hey, you know, why, why would you try to criminalize a friend selling a gun to a friend? Uh, he is pushing... Although not publicly, but he is pushing uh, for, uh, you know, the Manchin-Toomey background check legislation that he introduced along with Republican Senator Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania back in 2013 that would impose background check requirements on all sales at gun shows, including private transfers, as well as, quote-unquote, online sales. And I confess, I'm, I'm, it, it's been eight years since that bill's been proposed, and I'm still confused about what that means because... When you go online to a gun store and you say, oh, look, they've got a, a farm and inventory that I want. I'm going to buy that. You still have to go through a background check. In fact, that gun's not going to be shipped to you. Uh, it's going to be shipped to an FFL, to a federally licensed firearms dealer where you live. Uh, and you're going to have to go through a background check before you take possession of that firearm. So I, I'm, I, I don't understand all of the intricacies of the mansion to me bill. It does not go as far as uh, H.R. 8, the universal background check bill that's been passed out of the House. But. I don't even know that Manchin Toomey could get 60 votes in the Senate uh, when it came up in 2013. You know, there are only two Republicans left who voted for it, uh, Senator Susan Collins of Maine and Senator Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania. So that would get you to 52 votes in the Senate. But I, I don't know that you'd find uh, eight Republicans to, uh, to join uh, Joe Manchin in passing his preferred background check bill. And it sounds like uh, Democrats aren't going to be able to get Manchin on board with their gun control bill. So that's kind of where things stand in the House and in the Senate at the moment. Now, of course, all of that subject to what happens with the filibuster. And again, uh, all eyes on Joe Manchin as far as that goes. But uh, while the debate in uh, Congress uh, continues at a uh, somewhat glacial pace uh, on social media, the debate is uh, happening uh, much faster and dumber. Well, now I would say it's dumber. It's no, no, no dumber than it is in Congress. We've got a lot of bad arguments being made here. Uh, on Twitter, Caleb Hall 
noted a, a trend in the immediate aftermath of the shooting in Boulder. And this is something that, to me, speaks to the fact that I think even for a lot of folks on the left, a lot of folks who say they're gun control supporters, it's not really about gun control. It's always about some other issue. And if they can shoehorn gun control into their preferred issue, cool. If not, they really don't want to talk about it. So a case in point, these are just a couple of tweets. Uh, one from uh, Alex Cole that got 55,000 retweets. A white man walked into a grocery store in Boulder, killed 10 people, and was apprehended by the police and walked out of the building completely unharmed. Right down the street, police killed Elijah McClain while he apologized for not doing anything wrong. Uh, another uh, couple of tweets highlighted by uh, Caleb Hull. Uh, this one from uh, Reese's CG Media. Heard a shooter's been apprehended in Boulder, Colorado. Apprehended means he's white, right? And then... Uh, Jesus Christ uh-huh uh knew the boulder shooter was white when they said he was taken alive she uh Jesus actually ended up deleting that tweet because of course the uh suspect in this case not white so when they can try to make it about white supremacy or racism they'll try to make it about white supremacy or racism when they can't do that well maybe it's about uh waiting periods maybe maybe it's about uh, uh gun bans what does it matter frankly what 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 race or color or background the individual was who perpetrated these acts of violence, whether we're talking about the attack in Georgia, whether we're talking about the attack in Boulder, Colorado, whether we're talking about violence on the streets of Chicago. What does that matter? What does that matter to gun control activists who, you know, should be fixated on the inanimate object, not the person wielding them? Uh, instead, it seems like they're focused on the color of the person wielding that firearm. Then they're worried about the firearm itself. Rarely do they worry about the content of the character of the individual in question. It's Again, it's a dumb debate, which is one of the reasons why I've, I've been off of uh, social media the last couple of days, because I, I don't, I don't want to get caught up in the uh, cycle of stupid. That's just a dumb thing to argue about. Now, I think, honestly, it's kind of dumb to argue about a lot of the gun control proposals, but... I'm at least willing to argue over dumb policies as opposed to just, you know, dumb personal positions. Uh, and at USA Today, former Representative Gabrielle Giffords, the head of the Giffords Gun Control Organization, has an op-ed out in which she's calling on Congress to enact a number of gun control reforms in the wake of the shootings in Georgia and in Boulder, Colorado. She says in part, Earlier this month, the House passed two critical gun safety bills, a bill that would require a background check on every gun sale and a bill that would address the Charleston loophole, which allows a sale to proceed by default before background checks are completed. Now, these aren't gun safety bills. These are gun control bills. And they're not critically important because <laughs> when it comes to the universal background check bill, you've got real issues with enforceability. Uh, again, supposedly requiring a background check on every private transfer of a firearm is going to prevent those private transfers of firearms from taking place, according to the gun control advocates. How it does that, they can't explain. Because in honestly, uh, in, you know, in truth, background check bills don't prevent violent criminals from obtaining a firearm because violent criminals don't obey the law in the first place. And they're not legally acquiring their firearms. They're not going through a background check. They're getting their guns on the black market. They're getting their guns through family and friends. They're getting their guns through theft. 
some cases, they may be building their own firearms or printing their own firearms. But they're not walking out of a gun store, filling out a 4473, handing it over to the gun store clerk and waiting for the NIC system to return a uh, approved or denied status. That's not how criminals are getting a hold of firearms. And in states that have put universal background check laws on the books, not only have we not seen a rise in the number of background checks performed, we also have not seen a decline in violent crime, and we have not seen an increase in prosecutions for people buying a gun without going through a background check. Case in point, state of Colorado, which put universal background check laws on the books in 2013. In the seven years since that we have data for, we don't have data for this year, but from 2013 through 2020, violent crime in Colorado increased by more than 25% with universal background check laws in place with a ban on high-capacity magazines in place, with a red flag law in place as of 2020, violent crime still increasing in the state of Colorado. So gun control advocates like Gabrielle Giffords can claim that these bills are critical gun safety pieces of legislation, but they're not. And she can't explain why she believes they're so critical. Because if she started to talk about how these laws are enforced, well, all of a sudden the case falls apart. But even leaving aside for a second the enforceability issue, let, let, let's say that somehow the Federal Department of Pre-Crime is able to, uh, you know, uh, see these private transfers of firearms taking place somehow. I don't know. ESP. Mind reading. Does Gabrielle Giffords or any other gun control advocate really believe, really truly believe in their hearts that somebody who sells a gun to their neighbor somebody who loans a gun to their cousin should go to federal prison for a year because they didn't put that person who they've known all their life through a background check first? I, 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 I find it very hard to believe that even many gun control advocates think that, yeah, that, that punishment fits the crime. But Gabrielle Giffords continues. She has more to say, and she has more that she wants Congress to do. She writes, an estimated 22% of U.S. gun owners acquire their most recent firearm without a background check. This translates to millions of gun sales with no questions asked every year. Background checks won't prevent every shooting, but they are a foundational policy on which other gun laws are built. Okay, that's key. First of all, let's talk about the fact that millions of firearms are transferred every year between private individuals without going through a background check. Well, we don't have millions of violent crimes in this country every year. We don't have millions of homicides in this country every year. So if there are millions of these transfers taking place and thousands of violent crimes that are recurring, that tells me that the vast majority of these private transfers don't involve criminal activity. So again... Why would we try to criminalize it? Because, as Gabrielle Gifford says, these are a, quote, foundational policy around which other gun laws are built. So once you have your universal background check requirement, well, now, in order to keep track of these firearms, now you need a, a national gun registry, right? And now, in order to ensure, again, that the proper people 
are the only ones who can exercise their Second Amendment rights. Now we need restrictive gun licensing laws in place. The kind of laws that allow for local sheriffs or police chiefs to determine who is suitable to exercise a constitutional right. Those are the types of policies that Gabrielle Giffords is calling for. In fact, she says, we should also enact waiting periods, which might have prevented the Atlanta shooter from going on a murderous rampage hours after he purchased his gun. Note the weasel word there, might. From what we know about this suspect in Georgia, this is a guy who, first of all, grew up around guns. So the idea that, well, if he had had to wait a day or two, he could not have somehow gotten a hold of a gun, again, perhaps on the black market, perhaps through a friend or a family member who would not have gone through a background check. Kind of defies the imagination, doesn't it? But it also defies logic to think that this individual, who apparently had some planning and foresight, would have simply been uh, thwarted by having to wait 24 or 48 or 72 hours before he acquired his firearm. Let, let's say he, he, he had that mindset, I'm, 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 I'm so sick of this, I'm going to do something about this. Goes to the gun store, I want my gun. Well, you got to come back two days from now. So he goes home, and then he calms down. Well, I was, well, I'm glad I didn't do anything stupid. He goes back two days later, he buys his firearm, and then a week later, you know, maybe he has another quote-unquote relapse. What happens then? He's going to take that gun. He's going to go do the same thing. You cannot stop individuals from committing violent crimes by trying to remove every inanimate object that they could use to harm somebody, particularly in a country in which the right to keep and bear arms is protected by the Constitution. And not only that, is protected by the fact that 100 million Americans are exercising that right. We live in a nation with 400 million firearms that are in privately owned hands. You can't ban them all. You can't get rid of them all, even if you ban them all. There is no way that a strategy of trying to ban our way to safety is going to work. Not only will it run headlong into the Constitution, but it defies reality. And if you're going to do something meaningful, then you have to acknowledge the reality of the world and the country in which we live. A country, again, in which there are plenty of guns, millions, tens of millions of legal gun owners who don't want to give them up, even if you were to try to strip them of their right to own them. Gabrielle Giffords goes on to say, we must pass extreme risk protection order laws, which could have been used to disarm the Parkland shooter before he killed 17 of his classmates and teachers. You know, in Florida, they have a civil commitment law that has been on the books for decades. In fact, every state of the union has a civil commitment law that's already on the books. And if somebody is a danger to themselves or others, then they can be taken in for a 72-hour psychiatric evaluation. And if a mental health professional determines, yeah, this person actually is a danger to themselves or others, then they can be held involuntarily while they get treatment. And when that happens, they lose their right to keep and bear arms. It's a lifetime prohibition. Now, red flag laws don't actually address the dangerous individual at all. They address any guns they might own, and then they leave the supposedly dangerous individual to their own devices. If a red flag law had existed in Parkland, 
in Florida at the time of the uh, Parkland shootings. And if a family member or law enforcement, and by the way, Gabrielle Giffords uh, claimed that, well, if we had a red flag law, maybe Parkland wouldn't have happened, ignores the existing failures of the law enforcement community in Florida to deal with that suspect time and time again. They had opportunities. There were laws on the books that could have been used. They were not taken advantage of. They were not used. But another one's going to help. Another one's going to be the one that makes a difference. Well, let's say, again, that a red flag law in Florida was in place, and it had been used against this young man. They uh, seized his guns first. Well, first they went to a judge, and they said, you know, uh, we've we've heard that um, he's been making threats. Uh, against the school. So we think that he's a danger to himself or others. Uh, We need to take his guns away. Judge says, okay, go take his guns. I'm going to sign the order. They sign the order. They go and they get his guns. And then they leave him. They leave him with his knives, with his gas can, with his matches, with his car keys, with the ability to acquire a firearm on the black market. But they don't get him any mental health treatment. He doesn't get any counseling. He's actually never even referred to a mental health professional as part of the red flag process. So, no, I I don't believe that red flag laws are useful. I think they're useful for politicians who don't want to tackle the real issue. You know, as I said, Colorado has a red flag firearms law on the book. Law enforcement? can use it. Family members can use it. It was not used in Colorado. Colorado has a magazine ban on the books. Didn't prevent this shooting. You know what Colorado also has? A mental health crisis. A mental health crisis. There was a story I read not too long ago pointing out that in Colorado, basically the, the, the only people who have access to inpatient state-run mental health facilities are those who've already committed a crime. Yeah. After the fact, you can get help. Before the fact, they don't have the space. Now, again, to build more facilities, to hire more professionals, mental health professionals to deal with these individuals, that costs real money. Right? It's not as easy as just, well, we just need background checks, so I'll sign that law. Oh, we just need to ban this gun. Yeah, I'll sign that law. Nope. This is that. I mean, if you're going to build new facilities, if you're going to hire more staff, that, that, that costs cash. And it's money that Democrats... You know what? I'm not even going to just lay it all on the feet of Democrats. It's money that a lot of politicians don't really want to spend. Because, frankly, let's face it, um, a lot of these spending priorities for politicians are about, okay, how is this going to benefit me as a politician? What group of voters am I going to be helping here so that they look kindly at me? And those in need of mental health treatment, I guess just not a large enough voting block to matter. Now, I would think if you add in the family and friends of those who desperately need mental health services, yeah, you, yeah that is a pretty big voting block. But not enough, again, for the politicians who would choose to do something instead of doing something that works. Gabrielle Giffords goes on to say, we need to fund community violence intervention programs which are proven to reduce gun violence in under-resourced communities, violence that almost never makes the national news. Hey, guess what? I agree with Gabrielle Giffords. 
I actually do agree with Gabrielle Giffords. There are local programs. I've talked about them on this program before. There are local programs that can be put in place. There are strategies that can be put in place by law enforcement, targeted deterrence efforts that focus on those who are most likely to offend and those who are most likely to be victims of violent crime. And they are effective. And they don't require new gun control laws. They don't infringe on the rights of law-abiding Americans and of legal gun owners. And I am firmly in support of these policies because they're actually effective. Some of them, anyway. And I think we do need to be talking more about those programs and those policies. But again, that's about violence prevention, which I think is almost entirely separate from gun control. Gun control is not about reducing violence. Gun control is about reducing the number of gun owners, reducing the number of firearms in this country. Violence prevention does not inherently involve taking people's rights or their guns away. In fact, we've seen in the United States from 1991 to 2019, violent crime in the United States declined by more than 25%. Without any new gun control laws on the books, even well, I take that back. That did include the '94 Biden gun ban and magazine ban. But even after that expired in 2004, violent crime continued to drop. Even as more Americans became gun owners, more Americans embraced their right to carry. We now have more than 20 million concealed carry holders around the country. We'd have many more if places like California and New York weren't so restrictive in issuing licenses. We have 18 states where you can carry now without a license as long as you're a legal gun owner. And again, violent crime has continued to drop in the United States. So I reject outright the idea that the only way to make this country a safer place is through more gun control laws. That's not been our experience over the past two decades. And uh, I think it's very telling that gun control advocates don't want to acknowledge that fact. I know it's inconvenient for them, but the truth remains that violent crime in this country has declined even as more Americans have embraced and begun exercising their right to keep and bear arms. More guns does not always equal more crime. The experience in the United States over the past two decades has been more guns and less crime. Now, I would uh, add uh, uh, one other thing to the... um, suggestions that Gabrielle Giffords made. Again, I've I've rejected the gun control propositions outright. I think I've explained why. Briefly, I could talk about this for hours, honestly. Um, But in addition to those community violence intervention programs, there's something else that we really do need to address, and that's the criminal justice system. We're going to turn our attention now to our uh, armed citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report with a story out of Illinois. Here's the headline. Probation for Urbana man who shot another outside of a convenience store. Probation, he shot someone. Again, Democrats want to put people in federal prison for a year for selling a gun to their neighbor. This guy shot somebody and walked away with probation. The uh, News Gazette says this actually happened, uh, the, the crime itself happened more than two years ago. But only recently did the suspect actually appear in court. 34-year-old Damaris Minor pleaded guilty on Monday of this week 
to reckless discharge of a firearm. Admitting on uh, January 21st, 2019, he fired a gun outside of a, uh, a convenience store in Urbana, Illinois, fired a gun at someone in exchange for admitting, yeah, I shot at somebody. The assistant state's attorney, Christopher McCallum, dismissed a more serious charge of aggravated battery with a firearm. McCallum says that the victim in this case was unwilling to cooperate with prosecutors. And so Minor got a sentence of 30 months of probation for a Class 4 felony. McCallum said the shooting happened about 5.30 in the afternoon after the man who was shot in the stomach reportedly called Minor a racial slur. Minor responded by firing two shots, one of which hit the victim, who then left. McCallum said the victim recovered, but he was unable to pick Minor out of a lineup. Video surveillance footage from the store showed Miner inside the store before the shooting and leaving afterwards, but no actual uh, footage of the shooting was caught on tape. McCallum uh, said uh, that Miner has previous convictions for obstructing justice, manufactured delivery of cannabis, making a false report, and aggravated battery uh, dating back to 2004. Now, look, it sounds like the uh, victim in this case may have been a jackass. Doesn't deserve to be shot for it. Still a crime to shoot somebody, even if they call you the worst name in the world, you still can't shoot them. And I don't know why the victim in this case was unwilling to cooperate. Maybe he didn't want to show up in court. Maybe he was afraid that Mr. Miner's associates would come after him. Maybe he coded the streets. Oh, I just want to keep the, uh, the cops out of this. But this is a problem. And it's not always the code of the street. It's not always snitches get stitches, so I'm not going to talk to police. In some cases, in many cases, Witnesses are afraid to come forward because they've seen the revolving door of justice firsthand. You know, if you live in a high crime neighborhood, you, you, you see the same faces. You know who the bad actors are. And you see when they get arrested and you see them come back a couple of days later, some cases a few hours later, with little to no consequence for their crimes. So why would you stick your neck out? and be willing to testify in open court to try to put these people away, knowing that the odds are they're going to get a slap on the wrist. And even if they go away, their associates are still outside waiting for retribution. One of the things I, I, and, and nobody talks about this, but one of the things that I think would be most effective in reducing violent crime, particularly in our big cities, would be bolstering the witness protection programs, which are sadly underfunded in many places, and prevent people from cooperating with law enforcement because they're afraid for their own life. We need to get serious. And again, the focus needs to be on what do we do to get these individuals to stop shooting? And if we can do it by changing their life, that's great. But if it takes putting them behind bars, Okay, then that's what we have to do. And instead, again, the gun control mantra is, no, all we need to do is just ban guns. All we need to do is just make it impossible for people to legally acquire a gun, and then there'll be some sort of trickle-down effect on the criminals eventually, sooner or later. History doesn't show that that's the case. In Washington, D.C., after its handgun ban was put in place in the 1970s, violent crime went up. In Chicago, after its handgun ban was put in place in 1982, Violent crime went up. You can't ban your way to safety. It just doesn't work. 
And oh yeah, it's also unconstitutional. All right, today's armed citizen story from Indiana. A uh, police chase that ended in the uh, shooting of the suspect when the uh, suspect ran across an armed citizen in Granger, Indiana. Investigators say that a, a police chase that started in Goshen ended up with a driver being shot by a homeowner in Granger. Uh, it um, happened uh, Tuesday afternoon, uh, and this uh, police chase uh, went through several localities. Driver ended up ditching his car, took off on foot. Sometime afterwards, police say a homeowner found the suspect in an outbuilding and fired one shot at the suspect. Shortly thereafter, law enforcement arrived. Suspect uh, was shot once, taken to a local hospital, not suffering from life-threatening injuries, so he's expected to recover. Uh, Officers at the incident scene did not discharge their weapon. Again, it was the armed citizen who ended up uh, stopping that suspect. Um, The uh, St. Joseph County Metro Homicide Unit activated currently handling the investigation. Don't have a lot of details about what the suspect was uh, wanted for, Uh, but again, in custody thanks to the actions of the armed citizen acting in self-defense. And our good deed of the day involves somebody, actually involves a a couple of good Samaritans acting in defense of another in New York City. NBC4 reporting on a a good Samaritan and a bus driver helping an elderly Asian couple who were attacked uh, on a, a Brooklyn street. NBC4 says the couple carrying their groceries when they were accosted by a man they were walking in the Gravesend neighborhood around midday on Tuesday when the suspect approached them and tried to intimidate them and yank the shopping bags from their arms. And then a witness, who did not want to be identified, stepped in to help out, yelling at the man to get away from the couple. Good Samaritan says the suspect then turned his attention to him and appeared to pull an object out of his pocket. Good Samaritan said that he got angry at me and asked, who the bleep are you? And so I ran. He said, I ran across the street. Because, again, New York City, criminals are armed. Law-abiding citizens aren't. So a guy reaches into his pocket, pulls something out. What do you do if you're an unarmed citizen? You skedaddle. He says that a bus driver on his brakes saw what was happening and uh, intervened, literally putting the bus between the Good Samaritan and uh, the would-be assailant. Uh, and the uh, man said, then the suspect actually attacked the bus driver, uh, punched him. Spat on him. Driver started fighting back. Driver not having any of it, armed or unarmed. Suspect uh, ran off. Police arrived shortly after. Made an arrest after uh, locating the individual. The uh, Metropolitan Transit Authority says it applauds the bus driver for doing the right thing and showing, quote, the best of New York. Good Samaritan said to the driver, he's actually the hero of this. The uh, couple uh, escaped unharmed. The uh, unidentified Good Samaritan said that he had seen the suspect in the area before, believes the man may be emotionally disturbed. Again, something that mental health would, uh, greater mental health services would, would, would be able to, you know, treat. But uh, New York were interested in passing new gun control laws, too. Uh, for that reason, he said he did not believe the attack was racially motivated. But he said that recent attacks on Asian Americans are at the front of his mind. He says, quote, I think it's very important for everybody to step up. There was a lot of passerby, and I was screaming at them to call the police, and everybody was just walking by. Yeah. Because, again... If you are unarmed, if the only thing that you have to, uh, to, to, to help is your voice and your body, most people are not going to get involved. Most people are just going to walk on by. 
I, it's one of the reasons why I do believe that armed citizens save lives. Not just the lives of themselves or the lives of their family members, people that they know and love, but the lives of strangers as well. Unfortunately, again, because of the gun control laws in New York City and in New York State, it's virtually impossible for the average citizen to carry a firearm, either for self-defense or for defense of another. Uh, but despite the fact that that uh, bus driver was unarmed and was attacked, he again stood his ground and uh, stepped up to do the right thing. So uh, to the bus driver, to that anonymous Good Samaritan in the right place at the right time, willing able to do the right thing, we thank you both for your very good deeds. That is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program as well. We will be back tomorrow with more of the latest Second Amendment news and information from all across the nation. Don't forget, bearingarms.com throughout the day for even more Second Amendment stories. And uh, you can subscribe to Town Hall Media on YouTube or Bearing Arms Cam and Company on Rumble. That way you'll never miss a program. Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, townhall.com's podcast page as well. Until we talk again, be well. Be safe and be free.